everyone. This is Winona Daily News Editor John Casper Jr. Welcome to another edition of Winona One-on-One. Today I am joined by Stephen L. Blue, the President and CEO of Miller Ingenuity, an innovative company revolutionizing traditional safety solutions for railway workers. He's also a best-selling author of critically acclaimed books that target executives, leaders, entrepreneurs, and anyone seeking to learn the secrets of success in the corporate world. And he has a new book just released, and uh, he's going to be here to tell us about it. So, uh, Steve, thank you very much for, for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure, John. So why don't you tell me a little bit about, about your, your, your new book? Yep. Well, the latest one is, uh, and I have, you have the copy, don't you? I don't have a copy, oh, actually. I was hoping to, to grab one when I, when I left. Yeah. Vicky will <laughs> fix that right away. Uh, it's called uh, Metamorphosis from Rust Belt to High Tech in a 21st Century World. In fact, uh, you can probably have this one. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, thank you. <laughs> so that was, uh, I would say it was a compendium. It's my fifth book. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been writing books now for maybe 10 years or, or 12 years. This is a compendium. This is what I wanted the readers to understand is if you're in the manufacturing world and you're not in high tech, you're probably uh, on your way out of business. Sure. Uh, and anybody who's got no intellectual property in their products, anybody who has uh, processes or products that are easily duplicated or copied, uh, especially by the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't get into the high-tech world, you're uh, on your way out of business. And so I make the case in that book for what happens to you if you don't do something. And then I start talking about uh, how do you, what is the something that you do? How do you do it? Because it's not easy. In fact, uh, Miller Ingenuity went through a metamorphosis in the last 10 years, exactly what I write about from just making plastic parts and metal parts, and some were patented, but many were not. So now we have a whole suite of high-technology life safety products that are, uh, that are of the highest technology order you can imagine. And I chronicle the journey about how, how CEOs can do it, why they should do it, and how they should do it, and what, sort of what the steps and what the pitfalls are. What do you think is preventing CEOs from doing it? Is oh, it fear? Right. Is it age? Is it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I get asked that question yeah. a lot. I'm on the, I'm on the uh, public relations uh, circuit now. With, sure. You know, I just in- interviewed with uh, the CEO magazine and Success Magazine. And they, that's always the first question is, well, why don't they do it? Well, first, they don't do it because uh, they don't believe they need to do it. You see what happens, John, with a lot of CEOs are what I call fat, dumb, and happy. Mm-hmm. They're, hey, things are going along fine. You know, yeah, maybe margins have eroded a little bit, you know, in the last couple of years. Yeah, you know, competitions. I had to lower my price. The Chinese are kind of in my knickers. And, but everything's sort of happy, and they, and they just sort of go along and expect the future will be just like the past. And, and there's a psychological term for this. I think it's called uh, confirmation bias. That's what it is, confirmation bias. You see what you expect to see, right? And if you believe things will be okay and there's nothing fundamentally wrong, then you'll go find evidence that everything's okay and there's nothing fundamentally wrong. That's number one. Number two is some of these CEOs uh, running old line manufacturing companies are in their 50s or in their 60s. They just want to get to retirement. Mm-hmm. And so if they can just sort of like coast along, hope things are going to be okay, keep the board sort of happy and the shareholders happy, I just want to get to retirement. Mm-hmm. That's the second reason. Third reason is shareholders generally don't like change. Mm-hmm. So imagine this, John. Uh, you're the CEO of, uh, of the Winona Daily News, right? And so right. you go to the shareholders or your board of directors and you say, print business is, is dead. 
Mm-hmm. It just hasn't been buried yet, but it's on sure. the way. So here's what we've got to do. We have to go all digital, forget the printed paper. We have to uh, invest in podcasts, whatever it mm-hmm. is. And then the shareholders go, why would we want to do that? We're making so much money on the, on the, on the print side of it. You know, even though, okay, maybe it's not as much mm-hmm. as it was. Uh, but so why would we want to do that? And they prefer to stay comfortable in the world that they're familiar with. And they don't want to take the risk of moving into uh, uncharted territory. I'll give an example, which not, would not be uh, much different from uh, your business. Encyclopedia Britannica, right? Mm-hmm. They used to be the premier educational informational source in the world, right? Right. What are they now? Well, yeah. I tell, I tell you, I'm pretty <laughs> sure they're dead. Yeah. But I can tell you, though, and I have to give them credit because they, they saw the coming digital world. And so they started investing a lot of money and, and made the decision to make the switch into the digital world. Now, uh, it sounds easy. Okay, and, you know, you're in a computer now. Instead of putting it in print, don't put it in print. Leave it in digital. But they had a whole sales force that went door to door selling these mm. things. And their whole marketing methodology was geared toward the, the print business. So they had to change all of that and move into the digital world. And about five or six years after they started down that road, they spent a ton of money. Um, they were all digital. The big mistake they made, though, is they said Encyclopedia Britannica is a great brand. We're going to keep that name. It's a great brand, and we love it. And we'll just keep it. Who do you think of when you think of information? Yeah. Encyclopedia. Right. No, you don't. They could have changed that name a million ways, and it wouldn't have been easy, and it would have taken time and money. I'll give you an example. Uh, the corporation of Miller Ingenuity is called Miller Felpax. Yeah. Right? Great product. Felpax is named after one of our flagship products that we actually still t- st- sell today, but it's, it's uh, old line, uh, low technology. So five or six years ago, when we decided we we're going to get into the life safety systems, high technology world, we knew we had to do something with that name because... Miller Felpax selling a life safety system? you got to be kidding me. So we, we, with a lot of work and a lot of expense, came up with Miller Ingenuity. We wanted to preserve the shareholders' names. So did they do it, but we wanted to begin to position ourselves as, a, as an ingenious company. Sure. That's the mistake that Encyclopedia made. They uh, made all the right moves, but they decided to leave it. It's, it's like... Uh, it's like uh, if you were to build a brand new, never seen before in the world car. Would you call it a Studebaker? Do you <laughs> right. even know what a Studebaker is? Uh, I've seen pictures, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a car from the 60s, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or uh, how about Rock'em Sock'em robots? Sure, yeah. You ever, you ever seen those? Yep, they're, I have. They're great, but it's old technology. If you, yeah. if you try to do a video game called Rock'em Sock'em Robots, it probably wouldn't work. So that's the third, <coughs> excuse me, third reason is shareholders are afraid of the change, and, and unless they're convinced that the cost of not changing is greater than the cost of changing. They just won't make it. Yeah, I mean, is there any, is there any solid evidence you can point to to them to, to change your mind on that? Or is it all anecdotal? Is it all like you know? Depends on the company. Depends on the situation. Well, I could tell you one company that did make such a uh, transformation. Man, I can. I only know of one. Um, there may be more out there that probably are, John. I just I'm not aware of them. Sure. But um, um, it's not Sony. The, the name will come to me. Um, I'll have to I'll have to find it. Uh, they start their Nokia. Okay. Nokia is a company. Believe it or not, they started in boots. Really? Yeah, in boots huh. in the 1800s, and then uh, and then they decided uh, they were going to morph into some other lower tech, 
you know, low value kind of product uh, uh, related to boots. They're making boots and galoshes and all. Then they made a strategic decision that there's no future in boots and galoshes with really good margins. Mm-hmm. So they went into the cell phone business. And for a while, they actually owned the cell phone business until the competition caught up with them. But they're a perfect company. They went from low to high-tech uh, uh, profile, but there aren't many of them that, uh, that I know of. Sure, sure. How long did it take to transform from Miller Felpax to Miller in- Ten years. Ingenuity? Yeah. Ten years. And what I tell people all the time, and I write about it in my book, is you know it comes in, it's in three phases, this kind of transformation. One, you have to transform the organization. That's the most important part. Because if you have an organization that uh, ha- has a make do what I'm told mentality, punch this hole mentality, don't punch the next hole till the boss tells me to do it mentality mm-hmm. as an example, that's not the mentality and the culture that will serve you in the high tech world. So whatever your organization is culturally and organizationally, for, you have to transform that from what it is to what it needs to be to be in the high tech world. Then secondly, so that, that's the harder part. That's about a five-year transition because you just don't walk out in the factory one day and say, from now on, you're going to be this, and we're mm-hmm. going to be that. But you see it all the time, and it's what I call bumper sticker values. Wells Fargo is a great example, or United Airlines. You know what United Airlines, one of their core values is? Hmm. That we uh, do what's right for the customer. Huh? <laughs> they treat dogs better than they do yeah. customers, right? Mm-hmm. And so the cultural transformation to have an organization that's chomping at the bit to make new things, invent new things, try new things, uh, they feel safe doing that. There's no danger to them. And that is the biggest uh, uh, and the hardest part and takes the longest period of time. That's about a five-year period to, to go from what it isn't to what it uh, should be. And then, So that's the hard part. Then the second part is... You uh, have to uh, disrupt the marketplace with whatever your new products are. If you've been known as the dumb guys, now you got to disrupt the guys that think you're the dumb guys, and you have right. to reframe. And that's basically a branding play, a marketing play. Um, and you have to innovate the products that you need to get into that space. Now, that's very hard because uh, what most CEOs will do is they'll walk out in the factory or they'll walk in their engineering department and they'll say, from now on, we're going to be innovative. And I want you to have, crank out a new product every six months. And uh, I'm not going to give you the money for that, you understand, but you know, I want you to do it. And then they wonder why it fails. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever seen our creation station space? I have not. Uh, I was, was going to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah. we'll take a minute and we can go back there and I'll show you. What we did is uh, we decided that innovation was an all-hands uh, exercise. It was a, every single employee. It wasn't a white-collar thing. It wasn't an engineering department thing because when you designate a department to be in charge of innovation, the rest of them go, that's not my problem. And right. then when the department has a new product they want manufacturing to make, they say, well, my idea, I don't have to do that. And so we decided every single person was going to be part of the creativity effort. Now. Excuse me. You go out to the average factory person. You say, from now on, I want you to be creative. They're going to be scared to death. What's going to happen to me? I'm not creative. I'm just not creative. Mm-hmm. Are you? You're probably more creative than the average guy, John. I, 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 I hope so. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> yeah. In your business, I bet you are. Yeah. But your average person doesn't believe they're creative. People generally believe that you're either born an Einstein or you're not. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's not true. Studies after studies have debunked the theory that that uh, you're either creative or, or you're not. Creativity is a learned skill. So I brought in the guy uh, that used to be the ex-chief uh, creativity officer of the QVC network. 
Are you familiar with the QVC mm-hmm. yep. network? Yep. It's billions. It's 10, 15 billions. Unbelievably big. Co- he started there when there were hundreds of millions, and his whole job was to make them more creative, make them more mm-hmm. innovative. Then he went on his own. I brought him in here, and I had him train every single employee in the place on the principles of creativity. Mm-hmm. Now, some people go, <laughs> a shopping network guy you bring into a manufacturing space? Well, I intentionally wanted someone with a different perspective, different point of view. And again, creativity is creativity is creativity. I did not want uh, manufacturing creativity, I wanted creativity. So we brought him in, trained every uh, employee in the principles of creativity, and then in the beginning, John, we'd say to people, we want you to get together at this place and at this time and solve this problem. And they would do it. And uh, fast forward to now, uh, and the creation station was something we did after we started this process, because you just can't build up a space and say, go down there, drink some beer, have some pizza, and, and mm. come up with something good, and don't leave until you do, right? <laughs> mm. You have to, so the, create, the creation station was, was built after people got really jazzed up and really good at this process. So at the beginning, we'd say, here's the problem, here's the place, here's the time, here's whatever. Now they decide when they're going to get together without anybody telling them to. A lot of times they, they settle into the create uh, sensation because that's a great space for it, as you see when we go back there. Uh, but they can get together anywhere they want, anytime they want, solve any problem they want. Hmm. And in fact, I tell people that I expect them to spend 20% of their time doing just that. Wow. And, but you can't go, but you got to make the donuts. Yeah, yeah. So what we had to do, hire tw- effectively 20% more people to give people the time and the space and the freedom to be able to do that. Wow. Did you have any shareholders say that this is, this is crazy? Why, yeah, why are you yeah, doing well, this? Yeah. I, I, you know, I, my, my board was very supportive of the whole uh, effort, I, I'd have to say that. But I, have, I, I would have to say they were thinking this is crazy. Yeah. Because uh, my board uh, are all very capable business people, been around a long time. They're sort of like me, you know. I, I'm 67. Mm-hmm. So guys my age, you generally go, mm, no, 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 no. Let them do whatever the heck they want to do. That's the inmates running the asylum. asylum. Yeah. Are you crazy? Uh, but after, you know, the results, it took a while before the results actually became apparent. And I tell people, you know, a CEO will go buy a, a, a automated CNC machine all day long, half a million bucks, and, and without batting an eyelash. And the board will go, yeah, that's great, because it's an income-producing asset, right? Sure. I say my creation station and the process that we put in place here, John, is also an income-producing asset. The difference between the two, CNC machine wears out at some yeah, point yeah. in time. Huh, Our process is self-juvenating. Interesting, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, one thing I always like to ask, you know, highly, highly successful people is, have you failed in your career and what did you learn from, from, from those failures? Yeah, well, let's see. I would say uh, my batting average is not good. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I can think of, uh, since I've been here, just here in the last 20 years, I would say I've launched six or eight big initiatives, expensive initiatives risky initiatives, uh, and I would say my batting average was two of them were complete and absolute blundering mm-hmm. failures. Two of them were modestly successful and two of them were wildly successful. Uh, and I've had, I've had a lot of experience in doing things that uh, haven't been done before, and when you do things that haven't been done before, you, you risk. I'll give an right. example. I once started a company in Mexico mm-hmm. that did trail, trade shows. You know, you walk into the space and yeah. boost and all that kind of stuff. So we would we would market the show. We would you know ga- you know 
market uh, to the uh, uh, suppliers and exhibitors, set up the space, take all the risk for that, get the uh, customers there. We did all that stuff, and, and it was hugely successful. In the first year, first year we did it, we knocked the competition right on their butts, and they never came back. And it was just an absolutely hugely successful show, and, and for a number of years, and I, you know, divested my interest in it. So now I'm thinking, hey, man, I got this international stuff down. This is easy, man. I'm going to do it again. So I went down to Havana, Cuba. Uh, and I was at, went as a journalist, by the way, which is hmm. the only legal way you could do it then. Maybe right. it is the only way now. I don't know. They were having a uh, big rail conference, international rail conference down there that nobody from the United States could go to, right? Sure. And all the rest of the world of, uh, of railway systems were going to be there. So I went down. I hired a camera crew out of Mexico to come down and film the event because I couldn't bring a camera crew from the yeah. United States. And I filmed the whole event, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to be able to sell the, you know, the uh, proceedings like nobody's business because the United States guys want to know what happened there. They couldn't get down there. I, I, I lost my butt. I absolutely <laughs> lost my butt. But here's the thing. I don't know if an idea, I have a lot of lame brain ideas. Mm -hmm. I don't know if any of them are good or not until I try them. Until you bring an idea into the world, and I don't mean opinions. You know, you. One thing I don't do much is ask people about opinions of my ideas because their opinions are no better than mine. And sure. uh, if you ask five people an opinion and an idea, you'll get five different opinions, mm -hmm. right? Fact is, when you bring that idea into the world, into physical reality, somehow, like in my case, I went down to Cuba, hired the camera crew, and all. Up till that point in time, it was only an idea. No one knows. You don't know, and I don't know if an idea is a good one or not until you try it. If you try it, it's no better than a 50-50 chance it's going to work. Sure. So you got to have, this is your point, your question, John, you have to have blunders to have successes. There's no other way around it because it's a game of odds. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, now I want to shift gears to, to, to the writing process. Mm. Um, did you always, I mean, going back to your first book, did you always want to write a book? Did somebody approach you? Or is that kind of the natural progression once you get to a certain point in life that... Well, it is and it isn't, because yeah. I know a lot of people, it happens to me every week where someone will go, yeah, I've been thinking for a long time about writing a book, too. I said, well, as long as you think about it, it's never, never going to happen, you know. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> book writing is a methodical process. <clears throat> it's a, it's a, it's a dis it has to be a discipline process. Uh, I, when I decide that I'm going to write a new one, and you have to divide your time between writing one and marketing the one you just wrote. Because you can't do both at the same time. Sure. It just takes too much time. When I'm going to write a book, perfect example is uh, my third book, which you can have if you don't have a copy of, uh, American Manufacturing 2.0, What Went Wrong, How to Make It Right. I, I signed with a big publishing house for this one. Big publishing houses, uh, they say in your agreement, they say minimum of 55,000 words, maximum of 65,000 words. Yeah, and it's got to be done by this date, mm -hmm. and it can't be plagiarized. You know, the contract is this thick. I mean, sure. it just is. And so I go, okay, let's see. Uh, so I'm going to shoot for 60,000 words because I know when my editor gets it, everybody needs a good editor. Yeah, He's going to chop off 5,000 easy because you said this 15 times. You said it, you know, and he should. I want that. Right. So I overshoot the budget, and then I go, okay, so I want to get this done, let's say, in 60 days, 1,000 words a day. Now, you write a lot of, of yeah. uh, pieces, right? Right. A thousand words is not much, really. I mean, you know, 500 words is like this much on a page. So if you mm -hmm. get up every morning, you write your thousand words. In 60 days, you'll have your 60,000 words. Then you go into the process of giving it to the editor and, and so forth. 
But the thing of it is, people who think about writing books never write them because uh, they just think about them. And then they write maybe 200 words today, and then uh, about three weeks from now they go, yeah, it's about time for me to write some more on that book I've been thinking about. So my advice to people who are trying to do this is always the same. Set a budget. Um, stick to the budget. Okay, it was Sunday, one day that you didn't do it. One week you didn't do it, all right? Or it was Christmas. You didn't do it on a Christmas day. So in, say, set a budget for 90 days, you'll have 60,000 words done. They'll be ugly. Don't worry about that. Just have free flow of what's in your head, what's in your mind, what's the message you want to say. And then you give it to an editor. It's very important to have an editor that doesn't change your style and doesn't change your voice. That's really important. I found that out the hard way. Get it in the right format it has to be in, and then you sort of take it from there. Hmm. So it only takes you six, six, uh, 60 days to, yeah. to really yeah. write the book. That's, the, that's the, the shortest period. Right. The hardest period is getting it through the editor, You know, because huh. that takes okay. time, and they, they have other things to do besides me. And then when sure. you get it, you get it with the publisher, and you know they fiddle with it, and they do plagiarizing, checking, and all. Those guys take six months. Yeah, I'm yeah. done in two months. The average time on a on a book these days is probably about a year. Wow, yeah. but mine's the easiest part, the fastest. Sure. And so these books are all written by you. You don't mm-hmm. have a ghostwriter. You're not tried that in. once. Yeah, did you? Yeah, tried that once. Didn't like it at all because they uh, uh, never actually published anything that I uh, had the ghostwriter write. But he, uh, it was not my voice. Right. You know, my voice is a little on the brash side. I mean, my 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 tempo, my style is very direct. My uh, with some wit in the middle. Sure. That's just me, right? And so I have to write the way I am, the way I would speak. And he'd go like one time I wrote, uh, "It's the economy, stupid." Do you remember that phrase? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's not an insult to anybody. It's right. just it was a fact of his guy. And I think I said it's the business, stupid. He said, "Oh no, 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 can't say that." Somebody might take offense at that, and so I said, "You know what? I'll just do this on my own." Yeah, yeah. So this the latest one that was on on your own that you you, you published that book, or is that I did all of them. Well, you, this was for, with a big time publisher. The, yeah, uh, my third one. The the first two were self published, where I went out and I went and figured it out. Got an editor, got a book cover designer, got a um, you know a printer. Uh, Try to get get distribution. It's, it's all really hard. Easier now than it was ten or fifteen years yeah, ago. Yeah. The last two books were, were a big publishing house, but it's sort of a quasi-indie uh, publishing house specializing in, in uh, the kind of books that I write. Sure, sure. The fourth one was with Jack Canfield. I don't know if you got that one or not. I, uh, I wrote a chapter. Jack and I co-wrote the book. Um, the Art of Success. Art of Success. And uh, that was with the same publishing house I did uh, Metamorphosis with. And you're welcome to have that too. Awesome. That's awesome. kind of great. There's about 40 chapters in that. I wrote one, uh, but this is a great book for your readers, uh, for your uh, readers and viewers, John, because it's a book about life. It isn't just a book about business. Yeah. It has everything from you know meditation to, to uh, how do you heal the past wounds to how do you get past setbacks. That's a great, really a great book. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you ever think about writing, you know, non-business books, anything, you know, any yeah. or fiction or any, anything? Yeah. I mean, I imagine, yeah. uh, you know, you you seem like a a, a person, a, a, a creative person, and I imagine I when you write, you may think, oh, I can do other things too. You I know? have, yeah. uh, you know, the the genre of non-fiction, uh, uh, other than business books, they're all tough to uh, to break into. They're all tough to market into. Yeah. They're all tough to write into. To write for. You move into uh, you know other nonfiction. It, I don't know what it would be. It'd be historical, or it would sure. be you know 
factual that wouldn't give me much energy uh fiction might yeah fiction as a genre is just they they release i don't know they publish some ungodly number of fiction books every single day it's, a, it's yeah. an ungodly amount like a half a million a year or something sure. to break through that noise would be i suppose yeah and i like i, I stick with what i know the best yeah <laughs> for sure so far for sure. Uh, i'd like to get your thoughts on on the future of this town too i mean we've seen mm-hmm. a lot of Development happening downtown with Fastenal uh, building their their new office park. Maybe something happening at 60 Main, Bob Carolyn's new project. You know, where do you see Winona going in the next five to ten years, uh, just just as a city? Well, that's a good question. First of all, I'll say what you already know. We're lucky we have people like Bob Kierlin in town. Yeah. And I could go, I could list a dozen or 20 more people that uh, that are very prominent and uh, and put money into the town and care about the town and all that kind of stuff. And so the town wouldn't be where it is, in my view, without guys like him, really. Um, and what I fear in the future, at some point in time, Bob may move to, I don't know, Nevada, Arizona, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, God, heaven help, he may pass away. Yeah. And the people, the Fab Four, whatever they call the Fab sure. Five, and other uh, uh, people who are very philanthropic in town and have vision and have uh, courage, which, as you know, in this town, whatever you say, whatever you do, half of them aren't going to like it. Those people who put the no in, in, in Winona, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good point, they yeah. do. And so I fear when that generation, so they're still the first generation of visionaries and leaders in, in the town. And there's a lot of other people uh, on a smaller scale who have done great things for the town. Yeah. I mean, you could, you know them as well as I do. So I fear when they move on, in one way or another, the town uh, will lose its uh, vision. It'll lose its North Star. It'll lose its money. I mean, you, you look at the why, uh, the, the hopefully the new why. I'm on the Winona Health Board, so I, okay. I know something of these things. You know, we really need a new why in this town. Yeah. I mean, we really do. And it would be a great asset. And having it with Winona Health, you know, as the plan is, uh, benefits both organizations, benefits the community and all that. There's only about, most of the money for that's only coming from, I, I wouldn't reveal the exact number if I knew it, uh, but I wouldn't be far off. And I'd say it's about a dozen people. That's yeah. it. Sure. I mean, guys like you and me, we're putting in 100 bucks or something, but, you know, the big money's coming from a dozen people. And when that dozen people, uh, or the, the generation after them, isn't so committed to Winona, I would say Winona uh, would need a second generation of leaders. Otherwise, I'd fear for the future. Now a lot of great things going on, right? Yeah. In the downtown area and all that kind of stuff. You can name four or five people that are driving all that. Sure, really. sure. And so that's what my concern is. And the other part is what you just said, the known Winona. Uh, and this is normal. This is natural human tendency. They like to... St- keep things exactly the way they oh are. yeah yeah i think yeah. there's a group of people who think it's 1975 i know non-stop and they're know. you know why why do we need this why do we need that why that's are you tearing down this <laughs> you know that's it's a problem yeah sure yeah, that's a problem uh and uh that 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 mentality is not wrong nor right it just it just is and it's a, a generally afflicts older people it generally afflicts people who have uh i guess they call them townies i suppose yeah. you know and they like to, you know, I like it the way it was before. Right. Well, you're not the next generation. You, you need to give the next generation some time and some space. And that um, contingent worries me a little bit because I'm not sure that the people in government um, step up as often as they could to say, guys, I know you don't like it. 
I know you're mad at me, but next next voting time you can vote me out if you want. But this is the right thing for the community. We'll sure. look at when they uh, when Quick Trip wanted to buy the old Y building. Yep. Well, what happened to that? Yeah. Well, uh, and what about when uh, they were going to do all the, the softball fields down here? What a great deal that would have been. I mean, it's just been a great deal. Yep. And nobody wanted to step up and say to the crowd that was against it, the minority. Sure. against it say this is we, we're going to do this no matter what so yeah yeah and i know you're involved in a lot of groups and a lot of the charities around town what are you most proud of your your involvement in, in this community uh in, in, the, in the time that you've been here you know i and i've been here 20 years now and i'd have to say uh once somebody told me i don't remember who it was it was not long ago he said well you're a philanthropist i never really thought of myself as a bob kirlin he's a philanthropist yeah. i never thought of myself that way but it's uh, uh, generally recognized around town that I, I, I've had my fingers in a lot of pie. I'd have to say the, uh, the thing I'm most proud of, most people won't remember this, Judy Richter, well, 20 years ago, um, Ready Set School was lucky to collect $1,000 in a fundraising season, maybe 2000 at the most. I think they're up to like 20 or 30 now. It's more. It might even be more than that. It yeah. could be. Yeah. So for about ten years, uh, I uh, funded and, and guided a marketing campaign for them. I was advertising in the daily news all the time. I was on the radio. I was on HBCI talking it up. Why you ought to uh, contribute money to this? I put my own personal money in. I put corporate money in it. And uh, I really, I have to say this in all modesty, I really took them from. Not much, not, not to uh, criticize the people who were doing it because they were sure. great people. They just didn't have the resources I had. Right. And, uh, and I really uh, breathed life into that and gave it flight. And, uh, and I was with it for probably about 10 years one way or another. And, and I, uh, I'm just, that's probably what I'm most proud of. Yeah, well, my, my wife is now on the board at, at oh, Ready, she? Set, School. So, oh, okay. yeah. yeah, yeah, and I, it's a great organization. Yeah. And I, I know Jesse, uh, the, 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 uh, she, she runs it now. And, yeah, yeah. And I love, you know, they send, you know, a photo anytime they get like a $200 donation yeah, from right. somebody. But right. it, it all adds up. And, it sure does. And I know, you know, school's starting right now. And, you know, there are a lot of kids who are going to be able to open their backpack and they're going to have everything that the kid next to them does. Now, and that's, and, that's a great way to, to, to start the year. Imagine not having that. How do you right. feel when you have to borrow a pencil from the teacher? I mean, what does that yeah. do to your self-esteem? What does yep. that do to your ability to learn? What does that do to your future? I mean, to me, it all starts there. And I have been involved in a lot of uh, organizations uh, over the years. I'm on Winona Health Board. I uh, was on the Red Cross Board at one time. I was on the Winona Community Foundation Board for, for years and years. And uh, it seems like whenever someone wants to raise money in town i'm, I'm on the list I'm, thank <laughs> yeah. god i'm not the only one on the list but i'm on the list right right well hopefully with the things going on downtown that list will will grow you know I if, so. if we get if we get some more people in here and, i hope so because yeah. this is a great place to raise a family oh, and absolutely. Uh, absolutely. yeah yeah it's funny because john when we moved here when we first came here i was recruited and I brought my wife here to look around it was uh july of 1990 When's the when's Steamboat Days? August. It was uh, Steamboat Days. Now is over Father's Day weekend, but there was a time where I believe it was in July. Yeah, yeah. Cause so I, it was hotter than hell. It was, yeah, you know, humid, humid, humid. So <laughs> I brought my wife here, and here's you know where we're gonna. We lived in a big. We lived in Milwaukee. Before okay. that, we lived in Rochester, New York. Before yeah. that, we lived in Cleveland, Ohio. So we generally you know mid-sized cities. And she's uh, at the. Uh, Steamboat days, she goes, I would move to this little stinking town for anything. This place is 
And uh, fast forward now, you couldn't pry her out of this town if you wanted. Oh, yeah. If I walked yeah. up to her tomorrow and said, we're moving to Chicago, she'd go, fine, go ahead. Yeah. Come visit every <laughs> right. now and again. Right, yeah. Well, you, you've been here for a while. You know what happens. Either People either fall in love with this town, they sort of never leave, or they hate it right away and they leave soon. Yeah. We're in the and I just love the uh, people here. I love the uh, bluffs. I love the river. It's just, uh, and you're right. My kids grew up here too, and it's a perfect uh, place for that to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much for your time. Is there anything, any other parting words of wisdom you you would like to leave with with uh, with hopefully thousands of listeners uh, who downloaded this podcast? Thousands of <laughs> listeners. If you're in business, fail fast. Yeah. You know, because you can't uh, you can't learn anything new unless you fail. You just can't. You know, people, the uh, experience is what gives you wisdom, and the, the uh, wisdom is based on failures. And I've had a bunch of them. And if you're if you're afraid to make a mistake, you'll never amount to anything. And if people want to get your book, where should they go? Amazon.com is probably the best place. Okay. All right. Well, Steve, thank you very much for My your pleasure. time. Thank you. Yep. <laughs>